For all you regulars, as you probably noticed, Pastor Neil's not here today. He's away at a conference, so he had to call up his uh, third-string goalie here. Uh, so he made a, made a call to uh, our minor league affiliate there in Saskatoon, the Saskatoon Loons. I think my friend Dave here, he has one of their jerseys, I'm pretty sure. It's easy. <laughs> So here I am. So uh, thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, so this being Father's Day, I figured what better way to start than with some dad jokes. All right. So one of my favorite memories with my daughters is the corny dad jokes and those groanful puns. And uh, sweetest sound was to hear them say, Dad. Yes. <laughs> so first one, here we go. Why do fathers take an extra pair of socks when they go golfing? in case they get a hole in one. Yes. Feel free to groan, it's, it's okay. How does the moon cut his hair? Eclipse it, naturally. Yeah. This one you might have heard before. Why do seagulls fly over the ocean? Because if they didn't, they'd be, if they flew over the bay, they'd be bagels. Yeah, that's probably the worst of the bunch. So it's, that's only gonna get better from here. Um, if your child refuses to nap, are they guilty of resisting arrest? So, something to think about there. And lastly, how do you say grace if you're only eating a salad? This is from my daughter Cassidy, the, the vegan. If you're only having a salad, let us pray. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, remain, remain civil. All right, don't, don't charge. Oh, wow. Okay, enough of that. Speaking of praying, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you mu so much for uh, giving us the opportunity to come here today and to, uh, to look into your word and to, uh, and to just get to better know our Heavenly Father. And, uh, and by looking at that, Lord, we can uh, one day, if we don't already have a, a relationship with you, Lord, that we'll be able to have that same loving relationship of uh, a loving father and son with you, Lord, uh, for all eternity. And I just pray that you'll open our hearts and minds for the words you have for us and that you will uh, speak to us today uh, the words that you would have us to hear, that we might uh, know you better and uh, strengthen our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So um, this being Father's Day, uh, when Pastor Neil asked me to preach, I figured what better topic to talk about than our Heavenly Father. So I believe that most people's um, perspective or view on the Heavenly Father is based on their relationship or is at least influenced by their relationship with their earthly father. Now, unfortunately, our earthly fathers, being flawed, sinful human beings like myself, um, we often get the wrong idea of who God is. And the relationship that we had with our earthly father often affects that relationship we have with our heavenly father. So what was your relationship like with your earthly father? Were they absent, maybe uninvolved in your life? then you might see God as distant or uncaring. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad, <clears throat> he worked the afternoon shift when I was little and then the uh, night shift most of the time. So that's, I really don't remember my dad very much uh, growing up. Uh, I remember him seeing him drive us to church. So one thing I always knew is that he loved the Lord, uh, driving us to church on Sundays. But it wasn't until, well, probably you know, get, get older and you're able to uh, hold a flashlight, you know. It's like, okay, he's in the garage. Okay, I can hold a flashlight for him. Um, I knew that he loved cars um, and he loved the Lord. Uh, and it really wasn't until uh, my brother passed away <clears throat> that, 
know, we really got to develop a good relationship. Um, but, um, but again, he was a loving father. I can't say, you know, I was abused or anything, or he was like a, you know, an alcoholic or anything like that. <clears throat> but, uh, but again, you know, that influenced it. So growing up, you know, God was very distant for me. Uh, but what if you grew up without a father? Then you might see God as non-existent or even a myth. Or maybe you experienced tragedy as a child and you lost either your father or your mother. <clears throat> and uh, you might see God as uh, impotent or powerless. Like, why did God allow that to happen? Why did he let that happen to me? Why didn't he stop that? Um, my friend Dave here and I, we uh, worked together at a place called Alpha Logics, and there was a, a gal you might, re- Dave probably remembers, who was a, kind of a militant atheist. <clears throat> and once I got to know her a little bit, she confided in me that she lost her parent. I can't remember if it was her father or her mother, but when she was young, and she blamed God for that. And the reason she was an atheist is because she was angry at God. She, you know, why didn't God, you know, save my parent? Why couldn't he do that? And that influenced her perception of God to the point where she completely rejected God. What if, uh, what about, was your father a tough disciplinarian or maybe even cruel? Uh, maybe you grew up in a, um, a church where there was a lot of fire and brimstone preaching um, and then your relationship may be based on fear. Uh, again, growing up, that was kind of my relationship too with the Lord where um, I accepted Christ because I was afraid of going to hell. <laughs> that was it, you know. So as a kid, you know, I'm five years old. It's like, okay, heaven or hell? You know, heaven, great. Hell, sounds horrible. I don't want to go there. So I think I'll choose heaven, right? And that, that was, you know, as a five-year-old, you know, it's a pretty simple choice there. Um, but uh, so then, again, if your relationship, whether with your father or, you know, your early influences, that you look at God as this angry God who's just up there, you know, with a lightning bolt ready to zap you whenever you do something wrong, you know, you may have that, uh, that opinion uh, of God the Father. Or that, you know, nothing I can do is ever good enough to please my father. So now it's like I got to do all these good works. And maybe if I do enough good works, I can be acceptable to God. You know, again, if that was your relationship with your father, uh, you may look at God that way. Or maybe it's the complete opposite relationship you had, where maybe you were raised with little to no discipline. uh, There were no rules. And uh, this kind of left you feeling that you're on your own. There was no structure. There was no rules. Now you might feel helpless or insecure because you have no direction in your life. Or maybe you had the fun dad, uh, the one who never took anything seriously and uh, which uh, could then lead you to then maybe not take this life seriously or the next life. But each of these perspectives, when you project them onto God, is unhealthy and it's just plain false. So what is our Heavenly Father like? So many people will look at God as one of two ways, the angry Old Testament God or the gracious, loving, fun God from the New Testament. So those that see God as this angry, judgmental God, again, that'll strike you anytime you slip up, um, kind of refer to God as that angry Old Testament God. Um, And they look at For example, the God who wiped out almost everyone on earth with a flood. Okay, seems kind of harsh. Okay, I'll I'll grant you that. But they neglect to look at how he saved Noah. And in his love, he even saved 
a representative of every kind of animal, right? So if you're an animal lover like my wife, you know, she's like, yay, animals. <laughs> so let's get, as always, whenever you're reading scripture or you want to understand scripture, uh, it's important to look at things in context. So what was the context of the time of the flood when God uh, uh, brought in the, the worldwide flood? Uh, and verses up there, yep, here we go. Good job, Michael. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. And that's like everybody but Noah was like this, right? And in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. So in that point, it's like, what if God hadn't intervened at that point? If everyone was constantly evil thoughts and violent and attacking and murdering and, you know, raping and whatever, pillaging, all of that, you know, all over the place. That wouldn't be loving to just allow people to have to live in that environment. Um, and so, again, you have to look at this in perspective. And again, you know, you look at the judgment of God, but in uh, Genesis 6, 6 through 9, um, again, we can see a little bit more the heart of God. The Lord was sorry they had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. It broke God's heart to see, given man freedom of choice, which if you want to be able to have a loving relationship with someone, you, there has to be a freedom to do that. So if I were to program you know, uh, my wife or hypnotize her to, to make her love me and do nice things and to love me and do whatever, you know, there's not a satisfaction in that because she's only doing it because she's forced to do that, right? Um, if you force your love on someone, well, that's called rape, okay? So that's bad too. So God gives us that freedom of choice so we can choose and actually have a relationship with him because that's what he wants. That's why he created us is to have that loving relationship with him. And so God's heart was broken, but there was one man that he found favor uh, with in verse eight there. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Here we can see that relationship, that he walked with God. They had that close relationship, like a, a close friend. And so God provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family. Uh, reminds me of Adam and Eve, similar situation where when they, after the fall, um, they felt separated from God. They, fun, they went and they hid after the, they, uh, they felt after they did the one thing. You had one thing I asked you not to do. It's not even 10 commandments. There was one thing I told you to do. Don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, uh, Satan came and appealed to their pride and said, oh, did God really say that? You could be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the pride is I could be like God. And so they fell in that first sin. And so um, that their relationship, again, from their perspective was now they went and they hid. They felt distant from God. So in Genesis 3.8, we see this is God's perspective. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? So notice here is God. He came looking for them. He was seeking out a relationship with them. So even though they were going the wrong way, he went after them. He, he sought after them. 
And so we can see how our Heavenly Father desires a relationship with us. And again, that's why he created us to begin with. <clears throat> in 1 John 4.19, we read, we love him because he first loved us. Right? So again, he initiated the love relationship. We wouldn't even know love if it weren't for God. But does God only love us when we do good? And then if we're not good, then he's going to judge us. So you've got this love-hate relationship. Uh, Is this some kind of conditional love or do we have an unconditional love from our Heavenly Father? Well, Romans 5.8 gives us the answer. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, notice it wasn't, well, I'm going to make myself good enough and I do enough good deeds and, you know, if I could just earn my way, you know, tilt the, <laughs> the scales just enough in my favor, then God will love me and he will care about me. It's like, no, it was while we were still sinners that he loved us to death. He loved us enough to die in our place and to pay the price for our sins. So again, that Old Testament angry God. Many people look at the many times that God allowed uh, foreign nations to lay siege to Israel and to even take them into bondage. Uh, But they neglect to see uh, that in each of those instances, his people rejected him and they went seeking after other gods. So I can kind of see God, so like, oh, you're gonna seek after this God for you know, uh, money or power or whatever it is that you're seeking in this other God, you know, and you, you, don't want, you don't want a relationship with me? Okay, well, let's see how that works. And he pulls back and he says, okay, we'll see how that works out. So I don't see God as sending these other countries or these other nations in to attack them and um, as some type of uh, punishment or whatever. I just see it as he just pulls back his um, kind of ring of protection and allows the natural course take effect. I mean, if you look at even Israel today, so again, back then, you know, all their enemies that hated them, they wanted to take them out. And even today, Israel, surrounded by enemies that would love to wipe them off the map. There is no reason Israel should exist as a nation today. There's no reason for that. They're completely surrounded by enemies that want to kill them. Um, And it's only that his protection and his, his hand of protection that keeps them safe. So is there a, con- a, a contradiction now between this angry Old Testament God and the loving, gracious God of the New Testament? Well, look at uh, James 1.17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not like God suddenly changed from an angry God to a loving God. He is the same God. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Old Testament God, um, let's look at uh, Exodus 34. So let's look at an example of the real uh, God of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34 there. So again, it's important to look in context here. So after, so uh, in this passage, right before this, you know, Moses had been given the Ten Commandments and he comes down from the mountain and what does he find? He finds the people worshiping a golden calf and having this wild party, right? You know, worshiping this, this other God. So Moses, in his anger, he spiked the Ten Commandments and broke them. 
Right? He had a conversation with God, and you know, God obviously was, uh, was angry about this, but it's like, you know what? We don't want to have a bad testimony to the Egyptians and say, well, their God took them out just to destroy them. So God in his infinite patience and uh, mercy said, okay, let's, uh, we're going to make another set of, of the commandments of the law. And so uh, when Moses goes back up, uh, he asks uh, God, it's like, you know, I just want to see your face. I want to see you, Lord. Because, you know, God is a spirit, we know. And those who wish, worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So no man has ever seen God's face. Well, again, if you think of the God who is an infinite being that has the ability to create the entire universe by just speaking it into existence, that awesome, incredible God, if you were to actually see him in all his glory, uh, remember, uh, anybody ever see uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> when they open up the ark and the guy's face melts. It would be like that, which, it, which would be bad. So Moses didn't want to have his face melted, or God didn't want his face to get melted. So he said, well, I'll tell you what. You go back in this cave, and I'll just pass by, and you can kind of see kind of the remnants or the, the, the periphery of my glory. All right, and so that's where we pick up in Exodus 34 here. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And, you know, back then, a thousand would be like us saying billions or gazillions, you know, because, I mean, they didn't have a number for really bigger than thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so here we can see, here, these are the true qualities of God. Again, that Old Testament God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And he is the truth, the absolute truth. He's a forgiver of iniquity and our transgressions and our sins. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So he's also a just God, right? So uh, we have to balance the loving God with the just God. So if we, uh, if we sin, uh, then we are guilty of punishment. And uh, Romans 6.23, we know, for the wages of sin is death. Um, and the wage, that wage is um, a sacrifice of blood is what it takes to, uh, to cover the sin. In the Old Testament, it was they brought a, a sheep or a goat, um, and uh, it was that blood sacrifice. Even in the garden, you know, there was an animal that was slain to cover. It was only temporary, though, because remember, they had to do it every year. It wasn't permanent Not until we had the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So thank God, fortunately, we, he took all the punishment for us. Um, thank God for that. <clears throat> so now let's talk about this, about the New Testament God. So you ever hear someone say that, uh, you know, you look or walk or sound or laugh like your father, you know, kind of that like father-like son quality. Um, so if you want to understand the heart of our heavenly father, again, which no man has ever seen, right, um, all you have to do is to look at the son. If you want to know the father, look at the son. If you want to understand the heart of our heavenly father, look at the son. Uh, John chapter 10, beginning of verse 30 Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are one. Now this word one means, uh, in, in, the, in the Greek here, means one essence. So they're, they're the same uh, qualities, the same essence, and it's united. They are one. They're inseparable. 
So people that may tell you like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be deity. Um, Well, we can see very clearly he says, I and the Father are one. He's equating himself with God. So some people will say, no, that's not really what he meant. He's like God, you know. He's sort of like God in some ways or whatever. Um, There are many um, cults and false religions that'll tell you that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, I've spoken with them where they'll say that he's really Michael the Archangel, you know. All right. But it's easy for us to now look back in history and go, well, this is what he meant, or this is what he said. Well, the best way to understand, again, is look at the context. The Jews that were there, he was speaking to them. How did they react to what he said? So they were the best ones to judge what he meant by what he said, right? Because they were the ones that were right there. Verse 31, so how did they respond to him saying that he and the father were one? They picked up stones to stone him. (laughs) So I don't think it was like, okay, it's kind of like him. It's like, no, no, they understood. Jesus said, well, I showed you many good works from the Father. It's like, you know, why are you stoning me? It's not like I did anything to you, right? And then the Jews answered him, for good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So Jesus, again, the Jews right there he was talking to, they understood. What he was saying was that I am God, uh, God in human flesh. So you have to make a decision. Jesus said, he was God. Was, is that true? Is he Lord? Or did he know that he wasn't God in bodily form and he was just a liar? Or was he a lunatic who thought he was God but really wasn't God? So you only have really three choices when it comes to that. And hopefully you make the right decision. So if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So break, after breaking the news to his disciples, here's another example. Um, and he said, you know, I'm going away. So this is kind of his last days of his ministry. I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come with me, at least for now. And so obviously they're like, no, no, don't leave us, Lord. You know, again, they've had that wonderful relationship walking with him every day. And Jesus said uh, in his compassion, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God believe also in me. So again, as you believe in God, believe in me. There again, you can see uh, his claim to deity. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, or many mansions. You may have heard it uh, in other translations, which basically means there's room for everybody. doesn't matter who you are. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, you know, whatever ethnicity, wherever you come from, there's room for everyone. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So if we don't know where you're going, how do we know how to get there? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So notice that very carefully, I am the way, singular. There's only one way to get to God the Father, and that is through God the Son. Verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. Again, this is just not him in his humanity speaking and bragging, right? But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. All right, so if you don't believe that, and you, even though you've been with me all this time, how about all these miracles? You know, uh, re, uh, returning sight to the blind, healing the lame, raising the dead, you know? So, so that's not, <laughs> if this isn't enough, all right, look, at least look at the miracles as proof. And when you accept Christ, God, into your life, then the Holy Spirit will dwell in you, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. So, Father in Jesus, Jesus in the Father, that the God, the Holy Spirit in us, we have that, again, that triune relationship that his spirit um, communes with our spirit. And we can see this um, in Colossians uh, chapter one, where we can see that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this word image um, means, uh, it's a Greek word that means a mirror-like representation. So exactly like it. Um, it also, it, something that exactly reflects its source. So that's another good uh, definition of that word image. Um, and the firstborn of all creation. Um, now some people, again, some cults will tell you, well, that shows that Jesus was a created being. That's not what the word firstborn means here. And we'll, uh, it's a, a, a sign of preeminence. So you're the firstborn son, for example, would get the majority of the father's inheritance. He would also be, be in charge after the father passes away to, of all of that he had. Um, and uh, so again, that's what it means by firstborn. And it, and it explains a little bit more in the next few verses. Verse 16, for by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created. Here we see Jesus was the creator. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we see that Jesus was the creator, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities, um, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Here we see his eternal qualities as an infinite. Obviously, if you are to create all matter, energy, and time, you have to be outside of time to be able to create time, right? Um, so it shows that he is uh, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipresent, all those attributes of him. And in him, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So, so again, if... Uh, you know, someone's trying to tell you that firstborn means, uh, firstborn of all creation means he was the first one created, like, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses will say. Um, here you can say, well, it's, he's, here it's in context, he also says he's firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus the first one to rise from the dead? No, we had Elijah in the Old Testament raise the, um, the widow's son back to life. Lazarus, right? You know that story as well. So again, context is everything, Right? so that he himself will come to have first place, again, firstborn, first place, not, you know, help you understand what that means there in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So notice that phrase there, all the fullness to dwell in Jesus, all the fullness of God, of, the, of God the Father. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having, so again, here we can see that reconciliation to himself. The, actually, the reconciliation of us through 
his death, burial, and resurrection paid the price in blood for us to reconcile us to the Father and be able to provide that, uh, that sacrifice to provide us forgiveness, reconciling to himself. Having made peace, here we go, through the blood of his cross. That's how we have that reconciliation with God the Father is through the, uh, paying the price, again, in our place through the, his blood shed on the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So again, that phrase, all the fullness dwell in him. So Colossians 2.9 spells it out a little bit more succinctly. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So again, if it wasn't clear enough there, all the fullness of deity of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. Again, he, God, you know, so we can't say that God can't empathize with us because he, again, he humbled himself in the form of a servant to live the life, to be tempted in every way such as we, to be, you know, um, persecuted, to, to be, uh, <laughs> all the way to being beaten and scourged within an inch of his life, uh, an inch of his life, uh, you know, cru- being crucified, the most, the worst possible way to die. Again, he loved us enough to be able to take that punishment for us. And again, so he can empathize with us. So if you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Turn to Luke chapter chapter 15. So I won't have these verses up on the screen here. Um, So there's a a pew Bible in front of you there uh, in the New Testament. Luke chapter 15. I will be reading it for you as well. And uh, this is uh, the story here is going to be, uh, and depending how you want to call it, the, uh, the story of the prodigal son is probably why you've most heard it called, um, or the prodigal of the lost son. So um, in, in the New American Standard Version, the, the heading they have is the parable of the lost son, which makes sense, again, if you read it in context, because you have... Uh, uh, he, um, he gives a couple other parables before this, the parable of the lost uh, sheep, the parable of lost coin, and then this is an example of the parable of the lost son. So, uh, you know, growing up, um, I, I grew up in a kind of a fun, fairly fundamental church, um, and, uh, and, and most of the times I've heard this preached, they always put the folk emphasis on the son, the prodigal son, you know, and pointing out how sinful and terrible he was and don't be like him, you know, try and be, try and be good. Right. Uh, but I think the real lesson to be taken from this, uh, the main message in this parable, is really about the father's relationship to the son. So again, in context here, um, we see that uh, in Luke 15, uh, beginning in verse 1, again, just to give us the context here, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him uh, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So here you have the, you know, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. They were kind of the religious leaders and, you know, they you know, thought they were all that and they were above the people. It's like, who let these unwashed masses in here? You know, these sinners and tax collectors, you gods. And not only were they there, but it says they drew near to him. So they wanted to be in the front row. They wanted to be close to Jesus. They wanted to hear what he had to say. <clears throat> And so uh, he, uh, so after they grumbled, this man 
receives sinners and eats with them. And so when Jesus heard this, he gave them a parable. He's going to teach them a little lesson here uh, in a story. So the first uh, lesson he gives them um, is the parable of the lost sheep. So he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he, is, he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes to his home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Okay, so here the Pharisees, you know, who have dedicated their whole lives to religion, uh, right? And he's like, okay, you know, yeah, it's great to be good and to, you know, again, the whole religious thing. Um, but, uh, but he's like, you know what? You are basically, you know, what you're doing is you're just trying to be good, you know, maybe trying to earn your way into heaven. Um, you know, you've kind of exalted yourself here. And he's like, yeah, well, all of you that are here, well, it's actually better to have one of these that you're criticizing over here. More excited if one of them comes to repentance than someone who's, you know, been good all their lives. You know, to be able to see that, that drastic change into that one that was lost. Again, just one. He was concerned about just that one. Here we see the lost sheep, which is, you know, a, gr- a great um, parallel to, to us um, as that lost sheep. And then he goes on to give the parable of the lost coin. So I'm thinking that this is for, because remember there was tax collectors and sinners. So I'm like, okay, here, this one goes out to all you tax collectors. Parable of the lost coin. This is something they can relate to because they they love their money, right? And he says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, She calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, notice, just like we saw in the garden, just like we saw uh, with Noah, where God sought out. So just like the, the shepherd who sought out the one lost sheep, even though he has 99 others, that one lost sheep, he cared enough, he loved it enough to go out and find it. The lost coin, they went searching, seeking for that one lost coin. So in the same way, God cares about every lost soul. And so now we get to the parable of the lost son or prodigal son or however you want to look at that. I'll pick up in verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered it all (laughs) with loose living. So he just partied it all away. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, or basically became like an indentured servant to kind of pay off a debt. Um, And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So, of course, as a, a Jew having to go out and feed swine, that's like this low, about as low as you can go, right? And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods, these carob pods, that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to him. So the pigs were eating better than he was. <laughs> that's how low it was. <laughs> 
But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of the father's hired men have more than enough bread? And here I am dying with hunger. He says, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So here, notice it started with repentance. He realized that he'd screwed up. He realized that he'd sinned against heaven, so against God and against his father personally. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he's got this, you see, you, know, you can kind of see him. He's walking back and he's thinking, okay, what am I going to say to my dad? Okay, and so he's, he's working this up and he's, this is what he's going to tell, tell his dad. So he got up and he came to his father. But why, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And how did the father respond? He felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. So a couple interesting uh, commentaries I read about this passage. Uh, one noted that a gentleman of honor, like these Pharisees that were there that he was speaking to, don't run except in a case of emergency. Because remember, back then, they wore this long robe down to their feet. So if you wanted to run, you had to hike up your robe, <laughs> expose your legs, you know, and run. So that would be, you know, shameful to a person of stature to expose their legs and to run like that. Um, so this was uh, something that was actually considered shameful in the, uh, in the Jewish culture back in the day. So here he knows he just throws... Reckless abandon, you know. It's like, it's my son. He was so excited. So he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He just runs after him and hugs him and kisses him. And the son said to him, Father, and so here's that, what, he, what he's been rehearsing in his head all this time, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. So notice we have a blood sacrifice here. So we have a repentance. We have a blood sacrifice. And let us eat and celebrate. And this son of mine which was dead. So again, the analogy here being dead spiritually. And has come to life again. Receiving salvation when he comes to the father in repentance. He was lost. He was a lost soul. And has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. So this is like the Pharisees, right? And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Why, what's, what's with this big party going on over here? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and begged and pleaded with him. So the father loved him just as much, right? So again, just like with Adam and Eve, that the father went and he sought sought out this other son, his older son. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But... When this son of yours came, notice he doesn't say my brother, right? He's like, this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that I have that's mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours, so he sets him straight, this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost. And now has been found. 
So here we can really see the heart of the Father. Notice that, you know, whatever he did, you know, again, squandering all that he gave them with, you know, prostitutes and, you know, getting drunk and all the other things. We can only imagine what he was doing, partying all away and everything. But when he came back, God, uh, the Father um, accepted him and forgave him when he came with, with a repentant heart. So who is God the Father? 1 John 4.16 gives us the answer to that. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Again, here we see that, that relationship when we accept uh, the Lord into our lives. He abides in us and we in him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Again, he came in the form of a man that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So again, Jew or Gentile is what he's referring to. Doesn't matter your background, male, female, you know, bond slave, free man, whatever. Doesn't, none of that means anything. What does mean something is faith. Faith working through love. So the only ide- identity, and today's you know, all about identity politics and everyone has their own identity, that's all your different check boxes. But notice here, it's very clear, the only identity that matters is your identity in Christ. Matthew 22, when uh, Jesus was questioned, what is the great commandment in the law? So of all the law, now again, we think of the 10 commandments as the law, but there's actually 613 odd laws in the, under the Mosaic law. So it's like, it, so you might think you're doing pretty good on the 10. Guess what? There's another 603 <laughs> that you'd have to do. And again, the law was never meant to save anyone. It was only meant to show us that we're not worthy to get to heaven. We could never be good enough. Again, what could you possibly do to impress an infinite God who can speak the universe into existence? Right? So Matthew 22, when he was quest- Jesus was questioned, what is the great commandment in the law? And so instead of going from the Ten Commandments originally where it then was extended to 613, um, Jesus took that and actually brought it down to just two here. But uh, here he asked, what is the greatest? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Our relationship with God is foremost. That's the most important thing. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, if you look at all the Ten Commandments, all of them, if you just love God, right, you're not going to have any other gods. You're not going to blaspheme his name, right? Um, If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to cheat with their spouse. You're not going to murder them, uh, do any of those things. Uh, So again, it just breaks it all down to one thing, which is love. Love God and love your neighbor. And Galatians 5.14, again, really distills this well. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. So not only down to two commandments, we can break it down to one word. And that one word can be found in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is that one word? It's love. So in conclusion, the only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. Salvation is not about following a bunch of rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. It's a relationship with our loving Father 
who paid the price to, that we owe for our sins paid the price for us. All we have to do is accept that. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you haven't accepted the free gift of salvation and accepted his once forever forgiveness and the promise of eternal life, what are you waiting for? And once you do that, once you just come humbly to God and say, God, I've blown it. I know I'm not worthy. But I believe in Jesus Christ that he paid the price that I deserve to pay and that his, that perfect sacrifice paid it all. And all I have to do is just accept it, just receive that and believe that he rose again to give us life eternal and abundant life today as well. All you have to do is, if you do that, we can have an eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Just as you cannot separate the Father from the Son, once you receive the Lord into your life, no one can separate you from him. Romans 8 tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? So remember the, uh, the prodigal son, you know, he was, he was starving, he was naked. You know, the father came and put a robe on him. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So again, in that first century, um, you know, we, I was having a conversation with Cynthia here. We're talking about over in India where there's some uh, militant Hindus. And, and Lani will tell us about some of the militant Muslims where, you know, you risk your life by coming out and claiming the name of Jesus. And Paul writing here is like, yeah, we're, we're like, we could be killed at any time. We're like sheep for the slaughter, Right? But he says, but no, even in all of this, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature or any other thing. So if I left anything out, okay, anything else, I am convinced that none of those can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is the heart of our Father. And all we have to do is just accept that and receive that and we can have that eternal relationship that no one can break. Nothing can separate us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your long-suffering and loving kindness and grace and mercy that you bestow on us, not because we deserve it, Lord, but only because of your amazing, unconditional love And I just pray if there's anyone here today who has not accepted that free gift of salvation, Lord, that today will be the day that you'll remove any stumbling blocks, that we may be able to have that loving relationship with you today and forever and be able to live the abundant life uh, every day and for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.